Well, why don't we begin with prayer? Again, Father, we gather together in this place and we thank you. We thank you so much that we can gather here, that we don't have to sneak away and find a place where the authorities won't find us. We thank you that we can meet in a place that has climate control and protects us from the rain. Most importantly, we thank you that we can have our own copies, sometimes multiple copies of your word, and we can read it, we can examine it, we can study it, we can even search the scriptures as the Bereans did to see if what we're told is true. Now I do pray that tonight what I say would be true and I ask that you will bless each one of us in this place this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I quickly found as I was examining the subject on which I intend to speak tonight that it was way, way bigger than will fit into a single message. And I found some other really interesting things. One person commented, the preacher stood before his large congregation in his sonorous voice, prayed, O God, before thy majesty we are but dust. And a little boy whispered in his mommy's ear quietly, so quietly that all the congregation could hear, Mommy, what is but dust? <laughs> and then I was reading along to see what others had said about the subject. I found a, a blogger, a lady who primarily addresses other women. And the subject of her blog was, how big is your butt? Now, I'm pretty sure that if I say that to most women, they're going to say, excuse me. But what she said was, how big is your butt with one T? So her headline was designed to catch attention so that she could address this subject. I found a big defeater in my life is following up statements about what I want or need to do with the words, but I, I need to work out, but I am so tired. I want to get healthy, but I lack self-control. I want to stop yelling at my kids, but I just feel so frustrated all the time. I need to talk about this issue with my friend, but I hate confrontation. And so anytime we have a situation and we follow it up with the words, but I, the but seems very big. And she closes with something that probably would make a good closing statement tonight. She said, that's why I'm learning to follow every but I with a but God statement. If I catch myself saying but I, I need to see this as a trigger to redirect my discouraged heart with a but God truth. Now those two words are so fascinating. Last night in men's group we were talking about uh, in Acts chapter 3 where the layman is healed under the ministry of Peter and John. And I, and I made the comment that I've never seen a miracle like a layman being healed. And immediately our pastor said, you just saw your wife get healed from cancer. 
Well, that's true, but it wasn't a miracle like Peter and John's miracle, where a man was lame from birth, had to have his feet and ankles strengthened as part of the miracle just by Peter touching him and performing a miracle that was like Jesus had done many times. And so while I'm thankful that God still heals, very thankful, I wouldn't put it in the same class. All through the scriptures, we find those words, but God. In fact, I found a book entitled, But God. And of course, the author of the book started out his book quoting James Montgomery Boyce. You know, if you really want somebody to to think what you say is important, quote somebody like James Montgomery Boyce because he's, you know, such an authority. And he was a very good preacher, a very good pastor, a very good author, and a very good theologian. I think he was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia or something like that, but at any rate, well-known. And so he begins his book saying, this is a book about two words. Concerning them, the late James Montgomery Boyce wrote, may I put it quite simply, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. It's no surprise then that the human authors of Scripture use this phrase repeatedly to highlight God's grace in every aspect of salvation. From Moses to Paul and just about everywhere in between. And by the way, before Moses too, as we'll find out shortly. But God appears time and again at many crucial junctures in Scripture. It's the perfect phrase for highlighting the grace of God against the dark backdrop of human sin. To the left of but God, in Scripture appear some of the worst human atrocities characterized by disobedience and rebellion. But to its right, following but God, readers of Scripture will find hope, light, and life. God intervenes. Someone is doing something, and then all of a sudden we have this, but God. Now, I would like to point out, as I was looking at a number of verses, I decided, you know, I'm just going to have to take a small chunk. And so I'm going to look at the times that though that phrase is found just in the book of Genesis. Because... The phrase is found in the scriptures about a thousand times. Now, we could be here a long time to look at a thousand references where it says, but God. But it's also interesting, and this is kind of why I started with the joke, that the two jokes that I did. Those jokes only work in English. And when you look at the Hebrew language... With one exception in the book of Genesis, the word that is translated but God could be translated and God. Pretty interesting reading, uh, and I used to be much better at this than I am now. 
how many times a verse can be divided. I mean, it's easy to tell where the verse divisions are because it says and, and this, and this, and this, and this. And it is simply one Hebrew letter to which has been added a vowel pointing back in the 6th century whenever the Masoretic text was put together. A Hebrew letter, wow. And so how do we know that it should be translated but God instead of and God? As our pastor is so fond of saying, context, context, context. As a matter of fact, the very first time the words but God are found in the English translations is in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve is misquoting God. And it says, but God said, don't eat from the tree or even touch it. So that's one of those spaces where evil to the left isn't followed by intervention to the right, at least not immediately. She, again, is misquoting God as she says, but God told us, hey, don't even touch the tree, and that's not what God said at all. But the first place where I think we can find a great example of intervention, we find in Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8. Now, you can turn there if you'd like and skim over, but I'm mostly concerned with Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Remember the, the main points of this biblical story of Noah and the flood. The earth became incredibly corrupt to the point where God regretted creating mankind and decided to destroy all human beings way back in chapter 6. God chose to save one man, Noah, and gave him instructions for building a large ark in which to survive the flood God would send to destroy the world. Noah went into the ark along with his family and some of each kind of animal and the flood came upon the earth, wiping out all men and beasts outside the ark. The flood subsided and Noah left the ark with his family. Noah sacrificed to God. God promised never to destroy every living creature again, at least by water. And God made a covenant with Noah. Noah planted vineyards in this new world in which he lived, became drunk from the wine, was mistreated by his son Ham, and died. Now where is the high point in Noah's story? You can't say of Noah that he saved the best for last, can you? At the center point of the flood account, we read this verse, Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. But God remembered. Now, why did God remember Noah? We are told for no reason we can really determine that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the whole human race, incredibly corrupt. We think it's bad today. I don't know if we could have survived in pre-flood days. Imagine 
people living for hundreds of years having only evil intentions in their hearts. And there's Noah, who's described later as a preacher of righteousness, but nobody pays attention. And only he and his three sons and their wives are rescued from that flood. The author of Genesis, Moses, wants us to see that everything in the flood account points to God's salvation. The but God we see in 8.1. This whole chronology has as its high point God remembering Noah while Noah and his family are floating along. And when it's all done, things go downhill for Noah. But he still found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Do you ever stop to think that not only are we all descended from Adam, we're all descended from Noah? Now, there are other times when God intervenes in ways that seem perhaps a little bit odd. Later in Genesis chapter 20, we read, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Hmm. Well, okay, I'm king. By the way, Abimelech is a very common name, and I think it's probably more a title, because it simply means my father the king, or the king is my father, or something along those lines. We find Abimelech repeated throughout the book of Genesis, and it's not the same man. But he's king, and Sarah's beautiful, and so he takes her to be part of his harem. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, I'm not certain that any women today would be uh, thrilled at the idea of just being taken because the king wanted to add you to his harem, whether or not you were already married or not. And in this case, Abimelech had not touched Sarah. And so he responds in this dream situation, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? She herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this now. Once again, his integrity might differ from ours. But God responds, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. So return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so he'll pray for you and you'll live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who... Why is this so important? The seed. Exactly. There's a covenant that God made with Abraham. And their child is the one who will lead to the nation of Israel of whom will be born the Christ. That can't be corrupted by having her inseminated by someone who is outside of that family. 
But God, it says, came to Abimelech in a dream. So Abimelech, I'm sure, had plans for this new wife of his or concubine or whatever he was considering her, and God stopped it right there. Now, later on, Sarah, seeing that she's not getting pregnant, says, well, why don't you take my handmaid? And Abraham, not in his best moment, agrees to try to have a child by Hagar. And so finally Isaac is born and he's weaned. And Abraham in Genesis 21 verse 8 made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had born to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So apparently Abraham loved his first son. And then we read, but God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Isaac is the chosen child, but Ishmael will also become a great nation. And he did. A thorn in the side of the Israelites to this day. Isaac has a son. Actually, he has two. And the whole story goes that Jacob, whose name means supplanter, thief, something along those lines, is sent off because Esau wants to kill him for stealing his birthright and blessing. And so he goes to live with his uncle Laban, who is a bigger thief than Jacob. And it's interesting that after... Jacob has served 14 years in order to marry Rachel and having Leah thrown into the bargain. And if you ever study their lives, you'll find out that Leah was the far better wife. She may not have been the prettiest, but she was the one who was a better wife. And by the way, she was the one who was buried with Jacob. But in chapter 31, verse 4, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. And there's some description of how that happened. But God did not permit him to harm me. Jacob recognized God's intervention. And that story keeps going on in the same chapter. Verse 22, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him, you know, got his little private army together, and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. And then we read, but God 
came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Hmm. Watch how you talk to Jacob once again. Why? Through Jacob will eventually come the Messiah. So Laban overtakes Jacob and Laban accosts him in verse 26. What have you done that you tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you've done foolishly. It's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. The conversation goes on to say, why did you steal my gods? And of course, Jacob didn't know anything about that. And after Laban has searched the camp and Rachel had hidden those little idols away from him, Jacob responds, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Jacob is not a person I would pick to be in a position of authority. Great deal of character lacking in this man. And yet his name is changed. He wrestles with God and he becomes instead of supplanter and thief, he becomes prince with God. On the one side, the left side, darkness, fear. And on the other side, but God intervenes. There are just a couple of more passages which are great examples. And even as they were taking place, Joseph knew what God was doing. I don't think he knew why God was doing what he did. But one of the things we do not read as we look at the scriptures is that Jacob ever complained about what happened to him. Now you remember that story? He's thrown into a pit. He's sold as a slave. This is Joseph. Yes, correct. Joseph, not Jacob. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold as a slave. He does well as a servant of his master until his master's wife accuses him of trying to rape her. So he's thrown into prison. More years go by. He's forgotten. By the way, prisons were not like county jail. I've been to the county jail with the Boy Scouts. Very interesting when the doors close behind you because you know that until they let you out, you aren't getting out. And I was only there to visit. Not prisons in Egypt. They were mostly big holes in the ground. And nobody cared if it rained or not. Nobody cared if you were sleeping in the mud. But Joseph does well there too. 
And eventually, he becomes second only to Pharaoh. After Joseph advises Pharaoh how to have Egypt in, by the way, the whole known world, survive the famine that is about to come, his brothers come. Joseph plays some interesting little games with them. But finally, in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph cannot restrain himself any longer. In verse 1, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Now, let's just picture this situation. Joseph probably told all of his servants in the Egyptian language, go away. And the brothers, not understanding that, didn't know what he had said. But he cried so loudly that all those servants he had sent away still heard his lamentation. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now they were convinced that he had died years before. And so it says his brothers couldn't answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Not only do they think he's dead, they're standing before a person with a great deal of authority who can do, and he's already demonstrated he could do what he wanted. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now this is the one time in Genesis that it doesn't use that word that might be translated and. It's a Hebrew word key. A primitive particle the full form of the prepositional prefix indicating causal relations of all kinds antecedent or consequence by implication very widely used as a relative conjunction or adverb often largely modified by other particles annexed. Wow! I can barely remember that in English class. But in this case it really does mean but God. It's not and God. You aren't the ones who sent me here. It was God who sent me here. Now, they didn't really believe that, as we'll find a little bit later. But as he reveals himself to them and convinces them he's not going to slay them or put them in prison for what they had done to him, but he's going to give them a good place to live and take care of them, we come to the end of Israel's life. Genesis chapter 48, in verse 21, we read this interesting statement. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God 
will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now let's stop and think about that again. The land of his fathers, who would that be? Yeah, who never owned property except for a tomb. And yet it was their land of promise. And Israel says, you're going to go back. I'm going to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Now, two chapters later, after Israel does die... Once again, we read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, I don't know if Israel really said that or if they were making it up. But they do say, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Now, once again, remember the dreams that Joseph had as a young man? How many times do you think his brothers knelt before him? just like the dreams that God had given to Joseph. And what is Joseph's response? Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, and they did. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Wow, but God, there is such a huge transition. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to do evil. They wanted to get rid of this brother they couldn't stand. But God had a plan they could not overcome. And Joseph recognized that. You meant it for evil, but God had another purpose. And so later on in the same chapter, in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's interesting. I had a pastor who used to say about Genesis, it begins with the creation of paradise and ends in a coffin in Egypt. But that place where it ends, him being embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt is because he wants his bones carried back to the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. Could Joseph have been placed in a pyramid? Perhaps. We had an opportunity to visit the, uh, 
I forget what it's called, the Field Museum in Chicago, I think, where they've got an entire floor of Egyptian mummies and things like that, and they have an actual pyramid in the museum. You can walk into it. I don't think the Egyptians would allow anything like that to get out of their country today, but this was back in the day. And so you can follow the steps down and walk around inside this pyramid, which, by the way, is not large like the Pyramid of Giza. But you can go into the inner chamber where the sarcophagus was laid. And by the time they had investigated and found this pyramid, the archaeologists couldn't find anything in there because it had been looted may be part of the reason the Egyptians were willing to let it go. Joseph could have been placed somewhere like that. Joseph had done so much for the Egyptians, he would have been honored. But he said, just keep my bones ready for transport back. And when we get to Exodus, they did take his bones back with them. But God will visit you. The promise is made that the land belongs to Israel. Israel has never populated all the land that God promised to them. But they will. Because once again, God will intervene. Now, all of these things I have said just as examples. They're examples that are great stories. They're worth reading and remembering and looking at that expression that says, but God. Now, there are so many more. As I said, there's probably about a thousand cases of but God being used throughout the scripture. And yet last night, Micah would not give it up. He said, can you not just give me a little hint about what you're going to talk about? And I said, all right, but God. He said, yeah, I did, I did that once. And so I'm thinking, oh, great. I hope I don't repeat anything Micah said whenever he preached that message. And I may have to go find it in the archives and listen. But I also believe that there's a lot more content to investigate in this general subject of but God. I do want to close with this this evening. And it's a verse that Micah quoted last night when I gave him that little hint. Ephesians chapter 2 begins, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is not a good place to be. And then verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. Interesting construction in the Greek language. You could translate it, for by grace you are, having been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a great chapter. But God is in the center of all of that. Darkness, described so graphically by Paul. But God, being rich in mercy, redeemed us in Christ. And he's taking us to the heavens. It's, in fact, it's, it's past tense. He has raised us up with him. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to be there. But Paul speaks as if it's a done deal already. Pretty incredible. Because by his grace, God did these things to take us from the darkness to the light. As I said, there are many more, more scriptures that use that term, but God. And so many times is exactly like what we read here in Ephesians chapter 2. God intervenes. Things look bleak. But God. And if we can do what the lady I first quoted in her blog how big is your butt if we can say but God no matter what the situation it was a very painful situation for another person who quoted a whole bunch of verses about but God as she said I sat down with a friend who had pulled at a tangle of thread in her life and it had suddenly became a complete tangle as deceit and infidelity came to life, as everything she thought had been the case was no longer true, as her children were impacted by what had happened in her family, and she was wondering what God was going to do. Now, she's not the only woman who's ever faced that. But that led this teacher simply to say but God however dark it is but God now back in May when I made Luann stand up here to sing happy birthday to her not because I was trying to embarrass well maybe a little because I was trying to embarrass her but mostly because I wanted to let everyone look on this woman who had just received such great news. I made the comment, when the oncologist told us we're no longer looking for a cure, but for extension of life, I never once prayed that God would heal her. I prayed a lot that God would grant strength in the trial. And, you know... We started coming to this church and several people said, well, we're going to pray that she's healed. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I found out that 
you know, God knows better than the oncologists do. And God acts in ways that the oncologist can't understand. And it's been since May, and I'm really still processing it. And I said at that time, I didn't pray for her healing, but God. We have other situations, some were mentioned on Sunday. There's so many other kinds of trials that we will be required to endure. I, I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that said, if you've reached the age of 60 and you haven't received some kind of health condition, be patient, one will be assigned to you shortly. And probably health conditions are the easiest for us to face as believers. It's the problem of prodigal children. It's the problem of finances. There are so many things that happen in our lives and we always must remember, no matter how bad it is, but God. God.